From everyone at the McKinsey Podcast, happy holidays to you. For today, we're featuring an episode from a different podcast. It's our technology show, At The Edge. You're about to hear all about why business should be thinking about opportunities in space. See you in the new year. Groundbreaking space technology exists for all sorts of industries. What does it mean for your business in the next five years and in the next 50? There's a great set of technologies based on all of the intense private capital that's come into the space industry to develop different you know, innovations, but there's still a disconnect from how those innovations can really you know, help people in their daily lives or help businesses function or help governments function. That's McKinsey senior partner, Ryan Bruchart. He joins me with McKinsey partner, Jesse Klempner, to tell us about space applications already transforming industries and those that are just around the corner. Welcome to At The Edge, a production of McKinsey's Technology Council. I'm Mina Alagband. Ryan, Jesse, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. We've touched a little bit on the space for space economy, and there's no shortage of hype on you know the commercial opportunities in space at the moment. But today we want to get really grounded on the space for Earth economy and to talk to the two of you, experts across the demand and supply side of this, on where the opportunities are, where the hype is, and where the reality is. Sounds great. So, Ryan, maybe I can start with you. What is the role of space for the listeners? And how has that evolved over time? I think where I'd start with that is for 50-ish years, space has really been the domain of governments, right? And largely that's been due to the excessive cost of actually getting into space. I mean, this all started in the, in the 50s and 60s with the space race between, you know, at the time, the USA and the USSR. And so it was just very expensive to go there. There was really no reason to go there, as it were, if it weren't for national security reasons. And then we moved into science, and science became a real push. But what's really changing now, I mean, is that you know we're, we're moving from a space-to-space type environment to more of a space for humanity. Because we've had a number of technological innovations that have occurred really over the last 5, 10, 15 years, as an example, bringing down launch costs substantially that Elon Musk has done with SpaceX to the advances in onboard computing. Some of these technological advances have enabled the access to space just to be more accessible to many others. Non-government actors are becoming uh, realistic and the business cases close and you know private industry gets excited about that. We're really at the precipice of what's kind of a monumental shift. Think aviation in the 20s. Think about the internet you know, in the 80s and the early 90s and where we are today. So I think our belief is that we're really at that, at that uh, inflection point now. So Jesse, could you paint us a bit of a picture of the existing earth economies and earth industries and how they're going to be affected by this monumental shift that Ryan described? So I mean, I, I think I'd, I'd frame it this way. There are people who are overly focused on the space element of it. I think ultimately for the space for Earth economy to succeed and grow and scale going forward, we need to think about the thing that is being delivered to industries on the ground. I think ultimately what people receive today are pieces of data, which is many of the newest satellites are large or small modems in the sky that allow us to move information more rapidly around the world, or they take pictures of things. And the big unlock has been the scale at which that has been able to occur in the last decade. We can move information much faster at higher bandwidth to many more dispersed individuals or 
corporations or governments around the world. And the, the volume of information that we can extract from those space sensors has increased hugely so. To make it a bit more tangible, agriculture has been a massive use case for most of the space industry in the last couple of years because we are able to tell people we've taken a picture of the same field every day for the last year, for the last 10 years, we can tell you there's not enough water in the soil, or we can tell you that you need to change the volume of fertilizers that you are spreading. And it allows us to much more efficiently target specific areas and improve the yield of any of those fields. You can do the same thing for energy use cases, for some mining applications, uh, and of course, as Ryan said, a whole host of uh, security and intelligence applications. So Jesse, the example that you gave us is really about using satellite imagery that's gathered in space to inform decisions in uh, you know, industries that have a physical footprint where sort of seeing the evolution of that physical footprint over time can help inform, you know, whether it's sort of how much water or the intensity of your mining or some of the safety and security concerns that you may have come to light. Is the space for Earth economy just about satellite imagery? Absolutely not. So I, I think that I, I said the word sensors, and I think that we think about the types of sensors are proliferating pretty wildly. So people think about images most clearly, but there's also radar imagery, so to speak, that can be taken from space. There is RF sensing, which can be done from space, as well as heat sensing, as an example. These unlock use cases on the ground that we've never been able to have before. So for example, on, on RF sensing, we've always been able to track ships using AIS, which every ship at sea is required to have this indicator. Some people turn them off, uh, which of course you're not supposed to do, uh, and those things go dark and they disappear. If we're able to track RF from space, if someone on a ship has a cell phone that is on potentially or some other device that it emits, we can track them so that we can ensure that ships are not shipping or fishing illegally, that they are doing things that are consistent with how they should act on the seas. And then on the communication side of it, which has historically been the largest side of the space economy, it is far and away the most efficient means to distribute information to distributed locations, remote locations, uh, locations that are hard to serve through other means, fiber and things like that. So it allows a much broader set of individuals to have access to the internet or critical information that they need to survive. If I could add to that, Jesse, I think one of the big challenges is that you, you talked about radar from space and people might say, well, why do I need radar from space? Well, you need radar from space because you want to be able to take that imagery that you talked about, right? Take a picture, as it were, using radar, but you want to be able to do that at night or you want to be able to do it when there's cloud cover. A lot of folks in, in a national security uh, or government type environment they know why they might want to look through the clouds and see what's happening on the ground and see what's being obscured. But when you talk about those other industries, they don't even know that that technology exists or what it is used for or how it might apply to their own industry. And so I think we're also at this time where, you know, all of the space industry leadership need to shift really their, their model, right? How do they work with companies to try to help them understand the unlocks that space can provide for either their own growth for sustainability purposes or for, you know, other reasons, you know, you talked about holding people accountable. You mentioned, Ryan, some of those other industries. Uh, and I think, Jesse, you gave the example of agriculture. Ryan, 
what industries are you seeing really adopt interesting use cases leveraging space technologies? Yeah, we, we often get the question, in what order are some of these space technologies really going to be adopted? And maybe that's the way I'll answer your question. I think, by and large, communications is the first era, right? You know, we see TV and, uh, coming from space. Uh, most people have a radio in their car that comes from space. In that first era of communications, though, you also see what Starlink is going to do. It's going to provide people all over the world, regardless of where you are, or frankly, the economic conditions in those areas, uh, access any kind of information throughout the world. I mean, think about places like sub-Saharan Africa, where it's difficult to get electricity or water. They all have access to every piece of information in the world. The second era is what you said, Jesse, which is is imagery, right? It, it's different types of imagery, different types of what we call, like the technical term is remote sensing, different types of remote sensing. And I think that that's really the next big area of unlock to directly answer your question. You know, where we're seeing adoption today are in places like agriculture. We're seeing it increasingly in places like insurance. We're even seeing it in applications like banking, where you have folks that are looking at different financial instruments, you know, hedge fund managers wanting to see how many cars there are in a parking lot at a Walmart and how that changes over time. So I think, I think in many of the big industries, we're starting to see, you know, some adoption of that. Uh, but again, I don't even think we've touched the surface on that yet because of that disconnect between our space community and our sort of quote unquote non-space community. I think after that, there's a whole bunch of other eras that are out there that even further out, right? People think it's crazy, but there are things that we are going to be doing manufacturing in space. Uh, there are certain technologies that zero gravity or microgravity rather uh, uh, really will will help with uh, purity and fiber optics, for example, is really uh, advantage when you're in microgravity. And by the way, I, I sort of ignored some of the things that are already well adopted. GPS, that's enabled through a network of many, many satellites that are already in orbit today. I mean, think of what that's allowed us to do, right? I mean, of course, there's military applications, but it also allows Uber drivers in India to, you know, have a real you know, economic opportunity that they may not have had before. You mentioned, Ryan, that there is this distance between the folks who are thinking about space and the folks who may be running, you know, the insurance companies, the ag companies, and so on, where the applications even today, both from a communication and an imaging perspective, could be really valuable. What's driving that disconnect? And what are you seeing in the market that's allowing those industrial leaders to get smart and understand their use cases that could really propel their their organizations forward? I think the place I'd, I'd start is so many of the individuals and companies that are focused on space take a space forward position when they go and speak to insurance companies or anyone else for that matter. Ultimately, those insurance companies, automotive companies, hedge funds, whoever it is, shouldn't care about the space side of it. They should go and say, I can tell you how many cars are in every Target parking lot every Saturday, and I can tell you how that adjusts over time. Like, I didn't mention the word space at all. Like, th there is, there's still this disconnect where the space economy has been relatively inward focused or focused on government customers, and they need to figure out how to engage with the rest of the economy to bring their products to bear and not talk about space. Space is amazing. Ryan and I love space, we're space nerds, but that's not the 
beauty of what space can provide uh, to so many companies or governments. Uh, one example I like to give, Mina, to Jesse's point is cloud. You know, 10 years ago, there were some early players in the cloud, right? And 10 years ago, people didn't know what the cloud was or what it could do for them or why it was important or how it could unlock economic value or new capabilities. Well, today, almost every industry throughout the world, the C-suite executives, all the way down to the people on the front line, understand what cloud is, whether they understand it from a perspective of, hey, it's where my enterprise you know, data lives, all the way down to that's what I use to back up my computer. We didn't know what it was then, but we know what it is now. And I think space is a little bit like that cloud back then. There's a great set of technologies based on all of the intense private capital that's come into the space industry to develop different you know, innovations. But there's still a disconnect from how those innovations can really you know, help people in their daily lives or help businesses function or help governments function. I think it's a great analogy. People understand, hey, like I can access my files from my phone and my computer and all of these other places. But if you actually ask them to explain the technology that sits underneath it, very few people can. And I think this goes back a little bit to this idea that maybe the folks who are operating in space are so interested in the technology and the development of the technology that underpins this. The, you know, a lot of the less technical buyers or, or folks who have technical expertise in different areas may not be able to relate to it. So if I'm sitting there as the CEO of an insurance company or a manager at a fund, or I'm sitting there and I own a mine and I'm listening to this podcast, how do I think about what the outcomes, these use cases that you've been describing can do to catalyze my business? It's funny because Jesse and I were having this discussion with the utility uh, CEO. We were just talking with him about you know some of these technologies he wasn't aware that these technologies, you know, even existed, right? What he was interested in is micro weather forecasting around wind turbines so that he could reliably provide power to his grid and knowing when he needed to trade off the turbine power with gas turbine power technology. And so I, I do think it is this question of our space companies, our space friends needing to really think through the big problems that they're potential clients are trying to solve. I mean, really going back to the CEO agenda and for the CEOs of those companies to think about their agenda and actually they may actually have to proactively engage, you know, with some of these space entities that are out there and problem solve and, and get some ideas around it. But, uh, you know, Jesse would love your thoughts. I think that the thing that we've really seen is I think smart companies are beginning to hire business development individuals that have a legacy or a history in the places that they're going to sell to. And increasingly, they're saying, if I want to convince a mine owner or a utility or an insurance company of the value of the product that I'm offering, I need to hire individuals who can do a consultative sale with history in that market. And I think that we're still in the very early innings of that shift, but I do believe we're beginning to see some traction in the, the model evolving. How do you think about the evolution of value pools in the space to earth economy and where there are actually going to be sizable economies and meaningful uh, sort of business opportunities? The technologies that we are using today and that we're launching this year and next year, they're not fundamentally different than those that you experienced 10 years ago. The more important thing is that the cost curve has shifted so dramatically in the last 10 years, that it's less about finding a huge new value pool that's that's out there, Mina. It's more 
that we expect to see a relatively high correlation between the cost coming down and the demand that that unlocks, which means that those markets that used to be, okay, I can only afford to use this use case once a quarter because I really want to check how much oil is in a tank in Houston somewhere. Now I can afford to do that every day or every week and I can do it globally. I don't need to focus on just one location. And so I think that there is a huge unlock given the cost shifts that have occurred in the last decade. I think one thing I'd add to that, Mina, is to Jesse's point, it used to be things that happened in space really still needed to be sort of analyzed and processed and synthesized by people on the ground. And that's also rapidly changing. So if you think about the ability to constantly be scanning the California canopy and you know looking for you know looking for forest fires and whatnot there really was no way to do that from space before now there is and there's not only a way to detect the heat as jesse said using a sensor but verifying that there is heat and that it's not something good it's actually something bad using a picture and then complementing that with full motion video from space to identify what it is and so what is that worth to the homeowners that live in that area to be able to have that early identification? What is that worth to the insurance companies uh, that would not have to pay out millions upon hundreds of millions of dollars? What does that mean to the state uh, that may not have to you know, basically pay to fix those areas? So yes, the, the, the use cases are somewhat the same, but the value pools, uh, in addition to the cost coming down, are also, they haven't even been estimated yet, to be candid. It's, it's interesting. So it sounds like, you know, sort of the evolution of the technology has meant and and the evolution of the cost curves have basically meant that the frequency with which you can leverage these has opened up a whole new set of use cases uh, and also really changed the ROI on on doing so. So it's really much more about sort of real-time decision making which has been enabled by this kind of stream of information and communication. Absolutely. And I think that we are still figuring out how to use all of that information um, in a way that is efficient and effective and doesn't overwhelm decision makers. I, we're, we're The whole industry is still sorting that out, which gives me great confidence that it's only going to get quite a bit better in the next five years. Maybe we could sort of spend a moment on the supply side. Who is supplying this technology? Should we just be imagining aerospace leaders? What does that landscape look like? I think it's it's a great question, and the diversity and proliferation of space industrial base, globally speaking, has expanded so rapidly, and it's because the bar for doing things has come down immensely. Let, let, let me give you an example. Previously, if you wanted to send a satellite up to take a picture, that satellite would cost multiple hundreds of millions of dollars. It would have to be built in a clean room that also cost millions of dollars to build. And then that hundreds million dollar satellite is going to get put on top of a rocket that in and of itself, hundreds of millions of dollars and then put into space and monitored by 10 people to make it fly. That's not the way the industry works anymore. People can build satellites that go into space in their garage. And I think everyone is tired of the proverbial garage manufacturing example but there are satellites that are built in downtown San Francisco now, in downtown Chicago. That was unthinkable. The The proliferation of people who can supply this stuff has been truly, truly mind-blowing. I think the other thing, Jesse, is 
just the people that are involved now are totally different. It used to be, to your point, Mina, it was aerospace players, full stop. It's not that way anymore. It's, it's, and by the way, big aerospace players. We've got small players now. We've got a lot of private capital coming into startups. Uh, we, but we also, beyond that, have data and analytics companies that used to play, but there was never really a reason for them to do much in space because you had a picture. What are you going to do with that? But now we have a lot of different types of information coming down that can be synthesized. And so you not only have, you know, in aerospace and space players, to Jesse's point, being proliferated, but you have different and new players, data analytics players, you know, you've got tech companies. Everybody is finding ways to participate, as it were. You know, I was imagining... You know, the the big uh, traditional aerospace and defense companies playing a big role. Are they being disrupted in the space? Will they continue to play as they have in sort of today's aerospace and defense world? Will they continue to play an outsized role? Or is the space economy going to be a more fragmented economy with many more players sort of sharing in those value pools? I think unequivocally, there's going to be more players sharing in the value pools, but less about sharing and more about hopefully expanding the value pools. That's what we see quite a bit of. And I personally, I think this dichotomy between old space and new space is, is false. There is one global space industrial base that is targeting these markets. And I think that the flows of value between younger companies, older companies, European companies, Asian companies, American companies, that's all going to flow in hopefully a much more dynamic manner than it has when space was largely the province of, of governments. I fully expect more people will prosper in the future than prosper today uh, as participants in the space industry. And by the way, participating in space doesn't mean that you launched a satellite or bought a satellite or something like that. You know, if you look at a country like Costa Rica, they have a thriving components space business. Uh, you know, that they want to grow. So I think this whole idea of expansion is not only companies, but it's also countries and institutions as well. They're really going to have to stretch and expand too to be able to accommodate the right types of governance, the right types of standards that are going to have to be in place to, to ensure that we have the uh, responsible and sustainable use of space. Sitting as, as an investor, sitting as you know, a potential founder, sitting as an executive in a legacy aerospace company. How do you think about the business decisions and investment decisions you're making over the next five to 10 years, given the evolving use cases that you described earlier, but also this kind of increasingly competitive supply side environment? I think that companies that have been in this participants in this market for a long time all recognize that the speed uh, of change in the industry has accelerated quite a bit. As I said before, I think that almost all of those companies recognize that, and it's really about prioritizing which levers they want to pull and how hard to go and address some of these challenges. And also, to be very, very clear, a lot of these companies that have been participating for a long time are on the leading edge of many of those evolutions, and we expect to see more of that. It is It is truly a dynamic industry where the democratization of supply has been incredible. There is amazing expertise in every corner of the industry, and it's democratized to a degree that we see individuals participating on the supply side. There's always been uh, rocketry competitions. A lot of them are high school rocketry competitions. We are seeing the same type of activity 
for space competitions, probably slightly more at the collegiate level at the moment. But we can talk about individuals participating in the space economy in a way that was unimaginable. Ryan, any suggestions for leaders on the supply side here on how they should adjust their strategies and their investments based on the trends that you're seeing? Yeah, there's probably three themes here. One of which is that speed matters a lot. You know, this is an industry that's changing very, very rapidly. And, you know, frankly, it doesn't matter whether you're a, a company that's been around for a while or whether you're a new company. The speed of, of innovation, particularly given the amount of private capital that's coming, is very, very fast. And so all companies are going to need to really think about, you know, how they move more quickly. Now, the implication of that is how do I get the right organization and people to do that? Obviously, we're all in a huge crunch for talent. So I think this whole idea of how do I get the right talent and, and excite that talent, uh, because I mean, frankly, space is fun. And so how do I get the right organization and talent, you know, to be able to to support that that speed? And then I think the third thing is what we've been talking about quite a bit, which is those of us in the space industry need to think about how we learn the agendas of our potential customers, learn the agendas of you know, nations. Ryan, Jesse, could you comment on how the technological innovations that you see coming on the horizon might change some of the opportunities that are coming up? I think that the biggest technological changes that we will see in the near to midterm relate to software and the application of advanced and high-powered compute to a larger pile of data than we've ever had access to. I think for many, many years, observers, whether those observers are investors or intelligence professionals, have been focused on change detection, which is how do things change? I think that they recognized that that was a somewhat limited aim. And what people really, really want to understand from afar is pattern recognition and deviations from patterns. And I think that the combination of a massive pile of information and advanced computing capabilities and advanced analytics approaches will allow us to drive insights around the patterns of life that we can't do today. So we've talked about value pools. We've talked about the opportunities for insurance and hedge funds, mining and agriculture. And now it's not that the economic value that those can achieve aren't important. But Ryan, you started talking about space for humanity not space for economy. So how will this translate beyond the economic opportunities to help humanity? I'd give you a couple examples, Mina, about how we see that that space will really benefit humanity. I, I think you know the first one is, unfortunately, uh, are in and around the conflict in Ukraine. I think all of us that have opened the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times and whatnot have seen images from many of the established space players and some new space players around what's actually happening in that country. And, you know, those pictures are, you know, being used to hold accountable, you know, bad actors. This is something that didn't exist before or could only be done by governments. And today, you or I can see a picture that was taken earlier in the day or yesterday about some of the atrocities that are occurring there. So when we talk about you know, space for humanity, that's one example. I think the second area is around sustainability. Again, we've always been able to monitor things from space, but we're at the point where 
we can do some very exciting and innovative things. For example, we can and we'll be able to increasingly monitor the canopy throughout throughout the world, not only to understand its health, but also to hold, again, bad actors accountable uh, for taking down parts of our rainforest they shouldn't. Uh, also being able to use those same images to do as Jesse suggested, where do we need to put interventions in place to help those resources that we want to keep sustainable? The third area is what I would call kind of the democratization and ubiquity of information. I think that gets us really excited that many of the players today are going to make information available. We're seeing that in Ukraine where you know SpaceX, for example, is providing connectivity you know, to people in Ukraine that are cut off. This ubiquity of information and accessibility to information is super exciting as you think about the need to grow globally and the need to uplift you know, citizens you know, everywhere throughout the world. This is a, a very exciting place where once you have information, there's a lot of things you can do with it. You can expand education, you can promote and provoke change. So those are at least three areas where in the very early stages, we're seeing this real idea around space for humanity. Ryan, Jesse, thanks for all of your insights. Before I let you go, I'm just going to ask you a couple of quick fire questions uh, for the fellow space nerds in the audience. My first question for both of you is, what is the piece of culture, art, literature, sci-fi that has most sparked your interest in space? For me, it's a book called The The Right Stuff. And when we think about exciting innovations today. I think back to the bravery of all of the individuals involved in all of the programs that led to the ultimate landing on the moon. And I think that book more than anything solidified how this has been a journey of, of passionate individuals and some very, very committed countries and institutions to support the progress to where we are today. Yeah, I, I, I love the book, Jesse, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Star Trek. I uh, I think for me that was the thing that excited me. Right, uh, I definitely agree with the you know the book, the heroism and everything. But uh, I I just love the idea of space exploration. Uh, I think two two sides of the story there. Second question is, do you think space travel become ubiquitous, and do you think you will make it to space in your lifetime? I don't know that I'm going to make it uh, in my lifetime. I would love to. I would love to. Yeah, Jesse and I believe that space travel will eventually become something that many people do. Again, you know, if you think back to to airplanes and and flight, right in the twenties, I think that's kind of where we are today. Uh, where will we be thirty years from now? I think we'll be in a very different spot. Uh, not to say we'll quite be with the airlines the way they are today, but uh, I think you'll see a lot more people going uh, to space, and and more importantly, they're doing things there, uh, working and living, not just uh, you know, touring. Okay, one last one, Ryan, Jesse, and I think a favorite topic for for many of us who grew up, uh, you know, on a, a steadfast diet of sci-fi. Is there extraterrestrial life out there? I I don't really think I'm qualified to answer that question, Mina, but I I do think Carl Sagan was when he said the universe is a pretty big place, and if it's just us, seems like an awful waste of space. Thank you both for joining us on the podcast. Really appreciate your insights. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much.